And when I was preparing to raise money for this, I had a friend who had a friendly VC, it was his brother, and he said, I'll let you pitch with him, you know, to check out your pitch. And I went and talked to him, and he said, do you really want to take VC money? You do know what that's like, right? It's like you're inventing a new kind of airplane as an entrepreneur, and your job is to get the plane working well enough so you can take off, right? You have to make sure it can fly. And you may be testing it and going and going and going, and not be able to get enough speed, and you can slow down and turn around and go back to the beginning of the runway and try again. You can do that, except when you have a VC behind you, he's gonna be like, go, 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 and you may get a bad surprise. He said, you know, you have to be able, if you take this money, to know you're gonna be able to beat the runway. And so the question is, since time is our enemy, since time is the thing that all entrepreneurs are fighting, since we're all about to die at any moment, let's be honest, there's only one thing we really have to solve, right? And I believe this is true. Like, I know Reid Hoffman says the most important thing is your funding strategy, blah, 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 but I really think that this is from P. Marka, that this is true. The only thing that matters is getting product market fit. And once you have product market fit, you are going to be able to raise more money or perhaps not need to raise more money or raise more money because you don't need to, but you like to have buckets of money lying around because it makes you feel safe. You know, you have a lot more freedom this way. Um, I'm going to move back and forth because this light is very much in my eyes. So, I have a question. What if you could find product market fit in one week? That seems like a pretty outlandish statement, right? Well, I went to Copenhagen. I teach. I teach at Stanford and at California College of the Arts. And I was asked to teach at Copenhagen to a bunch of design students. And I had to teach them entrepreneurship. And these are people who think math is scary. They're like the Barbies of the entrepreneurial world. Math is bad. They're very frightened. And you know what? We only had 16 weeks. I normally taught this class as a 16-week lean launchpad class. And they said, just teach for one week. Get as far as you could. So OK, designers are scared. We've only got one week to do it. It's all day. So that's something. They did it. Those little designers, those clever international designers did it. They were able to get the product market fit. In fact, one of the groups actually got money and delivered a product on Friday, and they now have a plan for tuition. They now are making enough money that they're going to be able to pay for their, their teaching. And I was blown away by this. I thought, why are designers so good at it? I'd seen it in my 16-week class, but I thought, give somebody 16 weeks, they'll get around to it. Steve Blank's Lean Launchpad is really good. And when I started thinking about it, I thought, you know, designers have a skill that I think is pretty cool. It's called distributed cognition, if you want to be all academic and stuff, right? And all distributed cognition means is we've been told a lie. We're told that we think with our brains. But we don't think with our brains. We think with our brains, we think with our hands, we think with our bodies, we think with our post-it notes. Post-it notes are actually a distributed cognition strategy. We think with walls. Walls are actually a way to enhance working memory. It's amazing. This works so well. So our working memory is really poor. My daughter has um, a learning problem, which is she has low working memory. If she tries to pronounce a very long word, she's forgotten the first part of the word by the time she gets to the fifth syllable. That's real working memory. It allows you to keep things going. And you guys, you're getting out of the building all the time, but I bet you can't remember all those things that those customers said to you. 
So walls are great for memory. They also allow you to see connections that you might not normally see. They also allow you to share insights and understanding with your team. It gets the whole team on the same page because that page is the walls. So you can get insights for product market fit for techniques. Now, by the way, on the life cycle, this is not Laura who did validation. This is like, what the heck are we going to validate? This is a way to start figuring that out. So the first technique is fragmenting. Sometimes we call it free listing. And all you do is you take your research and you put one item on one post-it note. You're trying to break all your insights and all your ideas into the smallest possible piece so you can mess around and recombine it. And you know what? It makes information modular so you can recombine it. We're going to do it. I want you guys to do it. So you should all have a folder. And if you don't have a folder, you should have some post-it notes. And if you don't have a folder of post-it notes, you should have a nice neighbor. And if you're sitting huddled against the wall, I don't know, <laughs> tear up bits of paper. I don't know what to tell you. I'm sorry. Uh, I really didn't expect this much love. Um, so what I want you to do is I think most of you have had to travel to get here. Some of you at least have been on a plane at some point. I just want you to think about everything you like about travel. And the secret is only one item per post-it note. So if you love meeting new people, write new people on the post-it. And I want you to write as many as you can, one per post-it note. We're only going to do this for two minutes. Go. Right, 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 right. What do you love? Oh, that's a good idea. Excel. Very clever. And that makes it fragmented. <laughs> Museums. Uh, interesting new dishes. Uh, learning how to cook. Um, Swimming with manta rays, uh, sitting on a beach, uh, getting a new idea at the Lean Startup Conference. Just think, what do you love? What makes travel awesome? Take a couple more seconds to write a couple more. Weather, people, food, a decent sized bathtub for me. Okay. Now you're going to write a little bit more. And this should be even easier. We're going to write everything we hate. Hint. First post to note United. <laughs> How about that shower head? Can anybody figure out how to turn that thing on? or going to a new country, learning a new way to flush a toilet. Um, yeah, write as many as you want. For me, it seems to be about airports and bathroom fixtures, but you may have other things you hate. Not knowing where to go. Not knowing if all the hotels will be sold out. Um, not knowing a decent place to eat. Not knowing if it's safe to walk home after dinner at night. Think of all the things that you really make you unhappy about travel. 
and that list should be very long. One item per post-it. I like the use of the walls back there. Somebody gets a straight A for today's class. We need to give you a bigger room next year. Right? <laughs> uh, thanks for asking me back. <laughs> more minutes, theme, food, navigation. I didn't know where to park when I came here, and I just live in Palo Alto. <laughs> they told me not to park, but I don't listen to instructions very well. Okay, let's wrap that up. So we're going to hold these post-it notes for a minute. I promise you we will use them. I did not ask you to write things for no reason. I wouldn't do that. I'm not quite that cruel. Um, the second technique is called chunking. It's also sometimes called affinity grouping. And this is a very fancy word. I know some people are still really angry and still write post-it notes, waiting in line at United, mean hostesses at United, running out of food at United. I have a lot of miles at United and a lot of issues. Um, so chunking is when you take all those little bits of data and you look at them and you go, what is like other things? You're just going to kind of instinctually group them together. You put like ideas with like ideas. And there isn't really a rules to it. Um, you're seeking connections. You're seeking relationships. And you're going to remix it. So you're going to put it together one way, then you're going to try putting it together for another way. This is something that designers are, are great at, is trying things 50 different ways. So for example, the very first thing you do is you might want to put all the airplane things together and all the bathroom things together. You're going to look for relationships that are in the data. You go, I think this is kind of like this other thing. You can look at frequency. When you gathered the data and you got out of the building and you talked to 10 people, you might notice that all 10 people talk about shower pressure. That's actually a, a fun fact. The number one complaint about hotels is shower pressure. So you might suddenly go, wow. That's a lot of people are upset about this thing. We might have a hint here. You can look at a timeline. Um, something interesting, I, uh, I was talking to Braden um, Kowitz at Google Ventures. He does a lot of design work with startups. And he does something called a user journey. So he'll say, uh, let's say you gathered all this data and you said, well, first I have to plan, then I have to book, then I have to journey, then I have to orient myself. You could actually create a timeline of how these miserable and happy events happen. And the classic two by two. And it's up to you what you think they are. You know, uh, Laura used one in which she was talking about likeliness of it to happen and unlikeliness. And is it agonizingly painful or is it merely annoying? You can decide what your axes are. We're going to try one. And we're going to use the axes that I got from Steve Blank. And again, in your folder, you're going to find a matrix that looks like this. <laughs> I don't know if you call it a matrix. It's like a photo corner, really. Um, but it'll say pain and gain. So when Steve teaches about lean launchpad, he talks about pain and gain, but he doesn't really say how to rate it. 
What I want you to do is to get into little groups. So if there's four of you, you'll work in teams. Introduce yourself. Say, hello, my name is. Uh, I'm trying to solve world hunger. Let's talk about travel. If there's a group of three, work as a group of three. It actually works better with more. And pay, take one of your matrices out and put all your post-it notes on that one. Got it? So you're combining your post-it notes against the pain game matrix. Does anybody have questions about that? You're combining your post-it notes with your friends. I'm sorry, standing up people. I'll come over and visit you. You're combining your post-it notes against your pain game matrix. Work in teams. If there's three, it's a group of teams. If there's four, it's a couple groups of four. Four? Oh, your bowl. So um, when we're in a meeting, we're talking about pains and gains. Abstractly, we're just kind of like, yeah, pains and gains, whatever. But as soon as we put it on paper, we kind of get into some arguments. We get into some questions like, okay, is this a pain? But then if we fix it, is it a gain? Could something be both a pain and a gain? What happens when staying in a nice hotel is a pain for one person because they're sick of being away from their family, but is a gain for somebody else because they finally have decent cable? You know, so... The conversations that we have once we start making this physical are really valuable conversations. And you guys as startups, you're always saying, okay, uh, the two ways you can succeed as a startup is either you radically reduce pain, right, the aspirin solution, or we, um, 
We take something that's good and make it much better. I'm trying to remember if he found a nicer way of putting this, but Bradley Horowitz always said it was the Viagra, aspirin or Viagra. I think he replaced it with vitamins or something a little more PG-13. Um, but we're looking for those big ones. And sometimes we will talk and we'll say, oh gosh, yeah, we really hate that bathroom fixture. But when the reality comes down to it, it's not enough to make a switch. It's kind of low in the pain gain area because you hear people talk about it. They're kind of like, you know, they were annoyed by it, but they weren't really angry. So the putting together, the having the conversation, the making it physical, and hopefully putting it on the wall so we remember it, is a powerful tool. We start seeing secrets. Um, did people see patterns? And did anybody find an opportunity? Like, is there a new startup coming out of the room? <laughs> By the way, we, we do have a travel startup in the room. And he would like to ask that if you don't want to keep your post-it notes and matrices, leave it on the chair. <laughs> and he'll be, uh, he'll be by to collect it. I'm good. So um, why, why, do we, why do we do this? Just to discover unexpected insights into the data, really. Um, when you let people play with these little Legos and do whatever they want with it, you can find really amazing things. For example, this was um, Oslo, the city of the future, and they just gave people Legos and tried combining it in a lot of different ways, and they came up with some amazing uh, architecture. So last one is mapping to a framework, and this is, I think, one of the trickiest ideas of all, but um, it's also my favorite, and I think you're going to recognize it. So a framework is just basically a scaffold for thinking about the problem. It's a way to make sure that you know all the bits and pieces of a problem and you're not forgetting to look into a dark corner. So how do you do it? You select a framework that's appropriate. Are you trying to understand end users? Are you trying to make sure that you're thinking about your business model canvas? Um, then you map your post-it notes against it. And you know, I've seen a lot of people do the business model canvas by typing it <coughs> into um, a PDF. And I will tell you that is not as effective as doing the post-it notes, moving it around, constantly iterating. The only downside is the post-it notes fall off. You may have to invest in tape. But I think it's still more an effective way to work. And um, it tells you where you need to do more research or free listing, brainstorming, um, to fill in the blanks. So why do we do the frameworks? We want to find the hidden patterns. We want to, um, to fill in the holes, find missing areas of inquiry. So the empathy map is one of my favorite examples. And yes, we do have time. You guys all have an empathy map in your booklet. So this is going to be a little harder for you and your teams. What I want you to do is remap your post-it notes. But then notice in the corner, there's some stuff we haven't talked about. That's what I like about the empathy map. The empathy map, you say, OK, what do you hear? Well, let's think about being in the airport. What do I hear? Nothing. I really don't hear if my seats have been called. I haven't heard if my plane's been delayed. Hearing is a genuine problem in the airport, right? That becomes interesting. What am I seeing? Uh, I'm seeing a lot of strange men on the street late at night in Buenos Aires, and I don't really know how to, what they're up to, what's going on. Should I be nervous? Should I cross the street to their side? What am I seeing when I'm traveling? Uh, think and feel. You can probably get some of those pains. But I also might be thinking, um, I love this chance to swim with sea lions, but I'm also really tired and miss my daughter. So there's, a, again, those mixed feelings. You can start getting into your user interviews. So maybe you might have to go back out and do more user interviews. And as we try to do this for about five minutes, I'd like you to generate new post-it notes for this as you're going along. Um, you can also say and do. Um, now, with the empathy map, you usually try to think of a specific person or archetype. You guys work with archetypes or personas? 
right. a customer type usually, personas, okay. So you might say, okay, let's just talk about a business traveler. You know, forget our swimming with the sea lions tourist. Let's just think of everybody who came to lean. So we might say this guy, this lady, came to lean to learn something. She's hearing, you can do the airport, you can do the Fairmont. When I got to the Fairmont, I couldn't figure out what door to come in or, you know, if I went in through the Tonga room because I didn't want to climb the rest of the hill, could I ever find my way back up here? You know, I felt anxious, I was going to miss a session. Um, I saw no signage whatsoever. I saw a lot of hallways that led to nowhere. Um, you know, this might be something interesting. You know, if you understood these people were suffering, you could come up with an app that could help them navigate the space, or you could even come up with um, an app that told you when it's time, you know, for you to load on your plane. Okay, so um, we're just gonna take five minutes, and I want you to go back to your group and fill in the holes. Get some more post notes. I hope you have enough post notes, and fill in the holes. <laughs> Questions, a couple things that will help straight make this easier. Um, picking one traveler and picking one location will help. But the reason we do this is because we want to make our, say, mobile apps work effectively in complicated environments. One of the hard things to deal with is the noise of, you know, the airport. You won't hear your phone beeping. So how are we going to get those notifications through? It's a reminder of where the user really is. And it's a way to collect the data so that we're placing our... Um, apps in a context, okay? So to make it easier for you, I would pick one place and one person to work on, okay? And if you have questions, I'm gonna keep walking around the room, okay? Because it's a workshop. So what's interesting, you know, the, the worst thing about doing workshops is I can never be as interesting as all of you are to each other and your problems. So I'm always competing with hard problems. So um, once again, you know what, I'm going to try to get this over, um, I'm going to pull this in a little bit so we can get to Q&A, because I've got to say that people are asking really amazing questions as I'm walking around. Um, so one really amazing question is, why would you do these two different frameworks, right? You could just choose to do one, you could do the other, and basically it's because the pain gain matrix helps you get an intensity. So I don't know if you're familiar with um, eager buyers, stony sellers. It's an amazing research article that came out of Harvard Business School that showed that a product has to be nine times better to get a customer to switch. And if you guys are entrepreneurs, I'm guessing customer switching is pretty interesting to you. And so what you want to do is you want to focus on the really horrible pains and the really awesome gains. Now the empathy map is a different thing altogether. What it does is it gives you a picture of who you're designing for. And you might want to only pick like the worst pains and the biggest gains off of your matrix and move it over to your empathy map. But it's really about asking yourself, who is this person? How are they, they going to use your product? What context are they working in? Are there things I'm missing? Are there things I'm forgetting? I don't know about you, but I use tons of apps um, that it's really clear it was designed and tested in a, somebody's like, you know, uh, conference room. It's really clear it was never used in the real world. And this is a way of bringing that research when you get out of the building and getting it on the wall, getting it in a place where you can constantly be reminded of it and interconnected. The thing is, um, these are not sequential. These are just tools that you can play with. So you might ask yourself, am I focusing on a big enough gain? Am I focusing on a big enough pain? You can use the matrix. You could say, do I really understand how my customers use this? Especially with mobile products, 
Understanding context of use is incredibly important. So um, each of these tools, and I'm going to talk about a few more as well, will give you a different picture into the types of problems you're having. So a couple more frameworks you could be playing with. Go ahead, actually. Oof, so five minutes. Question on research of the pain game. Are the biggest opportunities on to the top right high pain, high gain, or is it actually when you have a disparate, really high pain, low if, gain? Well, you know, um, I used to work with uh, an MBA, and I'd say, "How are you today?" And he says, "Up and to the right." Um, I think. <laughs> sorry, MBA joke for y'all. Um, I think that's my only one. So what's the reality is the giant gain is going to be a product win if you solve it. A giant, if you can increase, you know, more people's access to it. Usually it's been solved by one or two people, so it's a bright spot, and you commercialize it so everybody has access to it. If you can fix a giant pain, for example, a 16-hour flight, if you can make that not painful, I suspect you have a market there. But if you have that blend, and it's really up and to the right, I would guess that'd be a home run. Um, the problem is a lot of people um, noodle around in that lower left, because it's flat, right? You know, you have all this customer research. Let's say 15 people are complaining about bathroom fixtures, but the reality is nobody ever planned their trip based on whether or not they could use the bathtub. So you really need to figure out, is this an intense feeling, or is this just a fun anecdote that you can tell your family when you get back? Oh my god, have you seen those Japanese bathtubs? Um, so that's what I think the pain gain matrix is useful for, if that helps. So I want to hit a couple more uh, frameworks that you can play with. This one's called mental models, um, and this is really whack. Um, what you do is you put a long line down the middle, and you chunk, or affinity group, your findings, and you put them above, and then you're going to go out and do competitive research, and you're coming up with all the solutions. And what's going to happen is you're going to find places where nobody's solved a problem. And that becomes interesting. So here's all your customers' pains and gains. Hopefully you cherry-picked from the upper area. And then down here, here's all the functionality your, customer, your competitors are offering. Is there a hole here? This can be amazing. This can show you stuff. And this will keep you from making yet another photo-sharing app, which is my gift to the Silicon Valley. <laughs> so user needs to go here. Offerings go here. Opportunities. Easy. And there's a whole book on this. If you dig this, I'll, I'll have a link to it at the end. So, um, and it can be huge. I would pick a very large wall for this particular effort. The other one I really love is called participatory roadmaps. And this is something that was invented by me and a coworker at LinkedIn. And what you do is you're thinking about your MVP, right? You've been talking to all these people. You're like, what should we build first? It has to be good enough so people adopt it. And you're going to build a chart like this. And you're going to put like, Three items in soon, maybe five or six in later, and a bunch in much later. And they're going to take it to your customers and say, you can move things around, but you can't add. You have to take out. And it's a way to get them to sort of force rank by physically moving things around, the features that really matter to them. So this can be very powerful. You know, they, they might say, God, I really need the students to upload assignments. I guess I'll take out comments. This is a great way to figure out what people actually care about. And, you know, for fun, you can do it with each other as well. You can have some fights and practice first. But doing this with customers is amazing. Um, you know this one, right? I think we're good with this one. Um, the funny thing is you can actually do this to make your pitch deck. I do this every time I give a talk. 
is from Duarte, the person who does like Al Gore's talks and stuff. First, you free list all your point, points, right? You're going to fragment. Every single point you want to make in your pitch, you write them in post-it notes. Boom. You're going to group them into themes, right? Chunk them together. Oh, here's all my points about the quality of my market. Here's all my points about uh, the customer need. Here's all my points. And then you map them to a story arc. And if you get the book Resonate, Nancy, this is my free plug for you, um, she has a story arc. There's also another great book by Dan Rome called Show and Tell, and it includes a pitch story arc. I vigorously recommend that one as well. But you can map it to any story arc. In fact, you could just take a film story arc and map it to that. But it's a way of making a story. So this is just, like, to me, this tool is amazing for so many things. So the next time you guys are sitting around a conference room going, I think people will really like our thing, you know, get up, use the walls. This is a real war room. And the thing is, the war room is your memory, it is your external brain, it is your team's brilliance. So, fragmenting plus chunking plus mapping equals insights. And then you validate them using Laura's magic. Okay? Um, I am giving a workshop this weekend at General Assembly on it. I'm also teaching a class at Stanford continuing ed on this topic. And here's some great books, including the Mental Model book, the Game Storming book, and the book you already own. Thank you. I'm exactly on time. Okay. Until they can, can I take one question? Can you go back to the previous slide? Okay. That's a great question. <laughs> that one I can, look, I answered it really quick. <laughs> okay. Um, any other burning questions? <laughs>